today and conscious that um, we're on the second Sunday of January. So we're still in the new year, aren't we? Um, And uh, at New Year, people often make resolutions. That's quite a, a common thing and often talked about. What's a resolution? A resolution, I think, is when we consciously decide or resolve to do something or not to do something, to change our lifestyle in some way. You notice the proliferation of diet things being offered uh, with newspapers um, and, and so on and on TV adverts. That's one example, isn't it, where people resolve in the new year to eat um, less of those things that, uh, that harm you. Personally speaking, I don't rate the idea of resolutions in that sense very much at all. I think um, we are better if we are constantly examining how we live and um, seek, with God's help, uh, to do things better. Um, That stops us from being complacent, doesn't it? But with this idea of resolutions in my mind, um, I went to, uh, to, to the Bible, and that, as those of you who know me know, a favorite of mine, the letter to the Hebrews. And the expression which we had uh, read to us there in that letter, let us. You all know the salad, don't you? I've told you that before, haven't I? That Hebrews is the salad letter, let us, you see. But uh, um, in um, my NIV Bible, uh, in Hebrews, the expression let us is used 12 times. I think actually the version that Ali was using, I think there are a few more there. uh, Because in our reading in my Bible, there were three let us, it is. But I think there were about five there. I don't know what the plural of let us is. Uh, but anyway, there we are. That, so I thought, let us, that's a resolution, isn't it? That's deciding to do something. That's consciously and corporately, because it says let us, not let me or I will, uh, deciding uh, to do something. And the writer to the Hebrews, that's what he's, he's getting at. He's saying to them, come on, let's get real with God and let's do this, let's do this, let's do this. And that goes through the book of Hebrews. And so it was tempting to sort of race through all 12 of the lettuces. But that um, wouldn't be practical and um, perhaps not as helpful. But in this uh, chapter 10, we read three or maybe five lettuces. So I thought that would be a, a good place uh, to begin the new year by looking at these um, verses a little bit closely and um, seeing these three things that we can resolve to do at the beginning of a year. Or perhaps discover that that's really what we are already doing. But when I um, sat down and read through uh, chapter 10, first of all I realized that um, There's, of course, a great deal more than one sermon in chapter 10. Um, 
But I did realize also that we need to sort of understand uh, the context of what we're reading. Because verse 19, you will have noticed, or we'll see if you have a, a, a Bible in front of you, begins, therefore. The therefore, of course, is the, well, because of what happened before this. And so we need to understand those um, rather complicated uh, verses 1 uh, to 19 or so, which um, go into the sort of old order of things, the way it used to be. Remember the title of the book. It's written to Hebrews. It's written to Jewish people and Jewish Christians. And all of this they would have understood. It would have been part of their, their makeup. It would have been part of their life experience. It would have been their faith, their religion to follow these um, uh, sacrifices and so on. And in fact, in the preceding chapters to chapter 10, we read about the old order of the priesthood and sacrifices and what took place in the tabernacle or the temple. But in these uh, verses, although reference is made to that old order, what, we're told, what are we told about it? That old law. We're told, that, well, really, it's just a, a glimpse of better things to come. That um, those rules and regulations, those rituals, pointed towards God's ultimate plan for our salvation through his son, Jesus. That old law was imperfect. It couldn't completely deal uh, with our sin and, and with its consequences. Because if that had been the case, then those rules and regulations would have only needed to have been followed but once. But they needed those animal sacrifices. They needed the priest to visit uh, the temple and the Holy of Holies and so on year after year after year and all through their history from the wilderness when God gave them the plan for the tabernacle and the Levitical law until today to some extent they are following those laws. What did they do? What they really did of course was just reminded the people of their sin, of their inadequacies, inadequacies of the gap between them and God. Paul, writing in Romans, says, chapter 3 and verse 20, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Certainly in the uh, King James Version, when uh, Paul's writing in Romans, he describes the law as being like a schoolmaster. Reference to some of you here. Um, Because the law simply taught them about their shortcomings and their failings. It just made them aware of what was wrong. And so when we get to verse 5, it begins, therefore when Christ came into the world. So you can kind of think of it, if you like, as a sort of uh, a scales and the balances are tipped 
to the law. And that's all the people had. And it wasn't adequate. And then, when Christ came into the world, you remember that, don't you? We've celebrated Christmas just recently. We sang of Emmanuel, God with us, the Lord's birth. That tipped the scales. You see, he was the fulfillment of the law as God's holy son, as one who was uh, sinless uh, and everything he did and everything he said, he fulfilled the law but in doing that he brought the law to an end. It was of no purpose any more because he had come of course to become that ultimate uh, sacrifice for us. And uh, at this Christmas time, we've been reminded of those Old Testament prophecies concerning uh, the Messiah. I thought of um, the Lord's own words in John chapter 8, where it tells us there when he's having his, one of his um, disputes with the Pharisees and the people and so on. It says, they did not understand that he was telling them about his father. So Jesus said, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. Even as he spoke, many believed in him. You see, the Lord came with a mission. And his mission was to save you and I. Remember uh, elsewhere, he says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save those that are lost. Uh, The other day, as uh, John and I were walking, we came to a path. We had to decide which way to go. And that song came to my mind from my uh, childhood. Some of you know it. John and Glinda know it. Jill knows it. I met Jesus at the crossroads. Don't know that. Well, as I'm uh, talking to you now, you know another song from my childhood has come to my mind. And it's the one that says, He did not come to judge the world. He did not come to blame it was to save he came. I expect some of you could sing the whole thing. But those, that phrase has come to my mind as we speak. You see, the Lord came with a mission and a purpose. But you know, he came as the successor, as the ultimate of all those priests and high priests that had gone before. He came as our great high priest, not simply to administer a sacrifice, but to be a sacrifice once and for all. We're told that he set aside that old order of sacrifices. Yes, he did do that, but he became a sacrifice himself for us, that once and for all, never to be repeated sacrifice. Do you remember on the cross, uh, one of the Well, the final words of the Lord um, before his resurrection, we're told in John's Gospel, Jesus said, it is finished. 
And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, this wasn't a cry of defeat, but of triumph. Sin and death had been defeated. When Paul writes to the Corinthians in chapter 15, he says, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? You see, death had been conquered. The result of this sacrifice is that we, who are exposed by the law as sinners separated from God by our sin, can be made holy. We can be made right before God. God chooses to forget our sins and we become what we could never be aside from Jesus' sacrifice. Righteous, right before God. In verses 16 and 17, he quotes the prophecy of Jeremiah in chapter 31, speaking of people who have God's law in their hearts and on their minds, whose sins are forgiven. If, we, if we're amongst those who have put our trust in the Lord, if we're amongst those who have taken that sacrifice for ourselves, that's us. That's us. Through the work of the Holy Spirit, God is going to put his law into our hearts and on our minds. He's going to make us different people. And so the conclusion of this, when we get to verse 18, and I've lifted this from the message because it puts it quite well. Once sins are taken care of for good, there's no longer any need to offer sacrifices for them. That has come to an end. Earlier on we sang, I am thine, O Lord. Can I ask how many actually knew that? Fanny Crosby, old hymn. Not many of us. Really? You've, you've missed an education, some of you. That's all I can imagine, really. Um, uh, but uh, perhaps we'll sing it again. I know it's old, the words are a bit antiquated and the tune's a bit funny. But if you look at those words, they say an awful lot, don't they? And you'll see later on why I, uh, why I chose it. So anyway, we sang that hymn. I am thine, O Lord. Well, there's a question for all of us this morning, is it? Before we move any further, really, are we his? Are we those who have turned to Jesus in faith and repentance? Now, we're going to get on to the lettuces in a minute. That was the introduction. Sorry. But before we do that, a time for uh, reflection and worship as we sing another song. Jesus Christ, I think upon your sacrifice. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. So we're encouraged here to draw near. We've seen that we're able to do that, and the reason why we're able to do that is because the Lord has removed the barriers. He's taken our place um, he was made sin for us. He's become, he became that sacrifice for us. And uh, so we are able now to draw near to God because the barriers of our sin has been uh, taken away. But, you know, I think we need to be conscious, really, of 
when we come, there really ought to be a sense of real humility. And uh, we sang that in that song, didn't we? We do need to have that recognition that we come not because of anything good about us, not because of anything um, special, not because we're perhaps not quite the sinner that others are. No, it's all because of the work of Jesus. Uh, you know, you do know that hymn, Rock of Ages, don't you? Yes. Well, do you remember that line in Rock of Ages? Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. When we come, draw near. Yes, of course, we draw near to God, but we draw near in all humility, in a deep consciousness of the debt that we owe. But also, we draw near boldly and confidently because of our faith, because of the hope and the assurance that we have. That's not to say that we are arrogant, but we are confident. We are not hesitant. And clearly, we come as we strive to be as acceptable as we can be. We're not sinless. We cannot be uh, sinless. That's not in our nature. But we are conscious of confessed sins forgiven. We're aware of our sins and failures, remembering the sacrifice made on our behalf. So we're able to draw near. What does that mean? Does it mean like on a Sunday morning? Well, of course it does. Does it mean on a, 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 a Tuesday at a home group? Of course it does. Does it mean when you come together with friends to pray? Of course it does. Does it mean when you sit at a hospital bed with somebody you, you've, you visit who's a, a Christian and you talk of Christian things and pray with them? Of course it does. It means all of those things. But you know, I think also it means sort of in your life, in your walk. Do you remember the Old Testament? It t- talks about Enoch. It says he walked with God. Do you remember way back with Adam before it all went wrong and sin came? Adam walked with God in the garden. I think it means that too. It means walking with God. It means being close to God. It means our God having an influence, being the reason for the things we do, the things we say, the way we live. I don't find that easy to say to you this morning because I can't put myself up. You know, I I need a few feet, you know, to... But I can't do that, can I? Because I... I'm as much, or perhaps I should echo the words of Paul, who said, Christ died for sinners of whom I am the chief or the worst. But that's what we should strive to do, to walk with God. When he says, draw near, I think that's what he means. And then he goes on to sort of say, draw near and then don't give up. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. 
This is um, good old New Testament stuff, isn't it? Especially in the epistles. How many times do we read about perseverance and patience? To stick with it, not to compromise. To witness, to be frequent in God's word and prayer. Hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. I think that uh, embraces something of living that life that pleases God and brings him glory. So let us draw near. Let us hold unswervingly. Let us persevere. And then let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. I'm sure I've said uh, from this spot many times before that I don't believe there are words in Scripture by chance. Many people view the Bible as a work of literature, and I'm sure that it is. But much more importantly, it's the Word of God. And so when it says, let us, it doesn't say let us spur one another on toward love and good deeds. It says, let us consider how we may spur one another on to love and good deeds. I don't think it means think about it and then don't do it. Don't misunderstand me. I'm sure the idea is that we spur one another on to love and good deeds. But we need to think about how that's going to happen. I think it's not to jump in, as it were, but it's to work it out. The message uses the words about being inventive. I think that's quite catchy in 21st century, but I'm not sure what exactly that means. No, I think the word here, uh, consider, is right. In the King James Version, it says, let us consider one another to provoke and to love and to good works. I think there's a sense here of needing to know each other, of being aware of our strengths and our weaknesses, of our differing gifts, and encouraging one another appropriately. Perhaps also it means having the courage to point one another in the right direction when we see that we're going a way we ought not to go. So in order to do this, we need to know each other. We need to be a a fellowship in a very real uh, sense of the word. This isn't, I, I believe, restricted to the leadership of a church. The leadership gets a mention later in Hebrews, in Hebrews 13. But I think this is about all of us, about Christians, about believers, about those who share in their love of the Lord Jesus and of their God and their relationships with each other. Let me be careful and say it's not about flattering one another. I've heard that in some strange guises. We need to be careful of that. Nor is it about sitting in judgment on each other. God hasn't made us anybody's judge. But there are times when we need that encouragement. And encouragement doesn't just mean saying nice things to somebody. Sometimes it means saying the things that are difficult to say to somebody. And doing it in love. So we have to examine our motives. And that's where I think the word consider 
comes in. And then, as if in the same breath, and I think there's an extra let us in what was read to us, well, that's great. But it says, and not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. You see, I think the things are linked. I don't, I don't think that it's like, let's do this and then let's do this. I think the whole thing is linked. It paints for me a picture of how church should be. And those of you that know me know that I've spoken on this many times, both from here and both um, in a sort of uh, more personal capacity. So I'm not going to labor this this morning. But nor am I going to apologize for speaking about it. Because you know it's something dear to my heart. And it is in the passage before us. So just some points uh, to note. It, as I said, it's linked to the preceding verses. And it all hinges on our relationship with one another. Uh, when we come to church, we come together first and foremost to meet with the Lord. Draw near. But we come to meet with one another and to be of a help and an encouragement to one another. When a church, God's people, the redeemed, those described in these verses, comes together, we draw near. We come as those in whom God's Holy Spirit lives, and that should be evident. In whatever church activity we're engaged in, we seek to help, encourage and pray for each other. And I just really question how we can neglect such a privilege and opportunity to support our fellow uh, Christian brothers and sisters in the Lord, to be in the presence of the Lord. So this chapter continues. It continues with warnings for those who reject this message of hope. In verse 32 and to 35, the recipients of this letter are reminded of the suffering and persecution they endured. For them, gathering together was no easy thing. It exposed them. They allied themselves with those Christians. Those Christians who denied emperor worship, all the other gods that were around, upset the people around them sometimes by uh, exercising their faith in that way. So, when he says, don't stop meeting together, like some do, he's not, for us, in comparison, it's a relatively easy thing. Nobody's going to lock you or I, not at the moment anyway, in jail for coming to church. A little bit of mockery maybe you might have to put up with. But nobody's going to suggest you're a, um, you're a lawbreaker uh, and uh, you know, persecute you in a, in a physical way, not in this country at least. But for these people, that was a real possibility. Puts us to shame, perhaps, sometimes, doesn't it, when it's a bit difficult to stir ourselves. Well, in my notes, we've come to the bit-headed conclusion, so we can all sigh with relief. I trust these um, rather scattered thoughts this morning have been a help to us all as we face that new year. In our relationships with the Lord, let's draw near. Let's walk with him. In our lives, as we uh, live 
before him. Let's persevere. Let's hold on to our faith and let's demonstrate it. In our relationships with our brothers and sisters, let's consider indeed how we might spur one another on to love and good deeds and not give up on meeting together. We're going to sing a hymn now to close before the throne of God I stand.